Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. I need to take a break from politics for just a moment. It's been such a whirlwind with these elections, but beyond the elections, there are still huge, important issues as the world continues to go on despite the politics of 2020. I want to read from you Amendment 1 of the Constitution of the United States. And some people ask me, why in the world do I read some of these basics? It's important we all remember these, and sometimes... I mean, if you'd studied your history way back or your political science class years and years ago, it's important that we actually know the words to our Constitution. We know these historical documents. But the First Amendment of the Constitution says this, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. So the focus in this First Amendment on this podcast is freedom of speech. It's a cornerstone. It's a bedrock to our country. It's under attack right now. I see it as one of the most significant issues facing our democracy today. Social media is the catalyst this time for the problem. A couple examples of this. The Atlantic publishes this scathing, unfair, unverified story that Donald Trump thinks veterans are suckers and losers and didn't attend a World War I menor- memorial service because he didn't want to get his hair messed up in the rain. Yeah, the writer actually said that in the article with over 20 times citing anonymous sources And it just runs wild through the internet, through social media, with zero limitations or restrictions. And by the way, as I'm even podcasting right now, none of it has been proven true. None of the sources came out as being valid whatsoever, although many came out and said it was just a flat-out, utter fabrication. Likewise, the New York Post, they publish an equally questionable report, at least at the time of publication, about how Hunter Biden dropped off a laptop at a mom-and-pop shop repair store. He just decided to never show up and pick it up. And so just because the owner decides randomly to check out the content, copy the hard drive, and then distribute the damning information that conveniently fits the accusations of Biden's son's dubious business dealings. The story was squashed dead on arrival by the social media platforms and all of the mainstream media refused to run any of it, citing that, quote, it needed to be verified. Ironically, this one that was squashed seems like there may actually be some truth behind the investigations. We'll see if any of it ever comes out. In the end of the day, in Washington, D.C., they're brilliant at covering up just about anything that gets anybody in the swamp uh, in trouble whatsoever, because probably all of them are doing it at some level at different times. But the question remains, Should both of these articles been squashed until they could be validated? Or should both of them just be allowed to run? 
Or should the platform even have the choice to choose? Can social media effectively and honestly police itself to be fair and impartial? This is a very, very important question for all of us to answer. Democracy requires freedom of speech to work properly, and this is at stake. It's ironic that when the internet exploded on society, one of the most important things to come about was this idea that the traditional gatekeepers of publishing were dead and gone, and thank goodness the world is going to be free to express itself. Now before I go on, I want to make sure we all understand what a gatekeeper is. In traditional publishing, let's just take a uh, television cable news, there's a producer and there's editors in the newspapers. And so the, uh, the stories pour into these news outlets every day from all around the world. And a publisher makes the choice, yeah, we want to run with this story. No, we're not running this one. Yeah, we're, no, we're going to go here, hold that one off for later. Basically, there's a group of people called gatekeepers that allowed information to be exposed to the public through their mediums. Now, of course, that just opens the gate to honesty and integrity and impartial distribution of the news. The internet was supposed to get rid of this. But it seems now, rather than getting rid of it, we now have new gatekeepers, the tech titans. And they may even wield more power than any of these prior gatekeepers could have ever dreamed of having. It's interesting because since the beginning of humans being human, we have always had this desire and this passion for discussion and debate. If we go all the way back to the Greeks, the Agora was this public space in the center of the cities. And it's the best representation of the people's desires to accommodate the social political order of the polis. There were philosophers and politicians and merchants and religious leaders and citizens would gather daily to hear debate and conversation about important topics to get the news across life in Athens. Then centuries later in Rome, the forum was the center of day-to-day -day life. It was the gathering place. It was the place where triumphal processions of when conquering heroes of the Roman legions would come home. Elections would happen there. It was the venue for speeches, for criminal trials, even gladiatorial matches and this nucleus of commercial affairs. It was the teeming city center of Rome. And it's often been called the most celebrated meeting place in the world. And, and even in the entirety of human history. As time evolved from ancient civilizations, we get to a point where technology takes us to a new level. And we see the advent of the printing press. And with the printing press, we see two major types of print that become the vehicle for debate. Pamphlets and newspapers. Of special note for the American Revolution, pamphlets were one of the most important conveyors of these ideas in the middle of this imperial crisis. They were often written by elites and they used pseudonyms and they were published by booksellers. Have, a, have long been held by historians as the lifeblood of the American Revolution. There's actually a couple that you can still read them all bundled together today. There was Thomas Paine's Common Sense or John Dickinson's Letter from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. 
These are just two of the more famous ones. And these were driving the resistance forward. They were putting out opinion against the status quo that the British wanted everybody to believe. Then we move on even later into the 1920s, the editorial pages born, and you get these dueling opinions for and against a position. They're laid out side by side in a newspaper, and they're clearly labeled opinion versus new. So you would literally turn to the opinion section of a paper, and you knew you could get these dueling debates on an issue. By the 1950s, Americans love this so much, it's embedded in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, because we love to debate different opinions. Then then even with CNN, we moved to the 1990s, and this political opinion becomes very popular on television. And yeah, the huge downside on this, cable news lobbied Congress incessantly and threw tons of dollars at them. And they got the fairness doctrine doctrine removed. And I've talked about this in the past, where basically the removal of the fairness doctrine allowed cable news to become as biased as they are today. But the, the fact remains in our discussion today that Americans have always loved debate. Now, everything's coming to a head with free speech in this in the latest forum, the latest agora the latest iteration of newspapers and cable news and it's online and it's the internet and so now we're talking about the debate over section 230 of the communications decency act of 1996 and if you watch news at all you've probably heard this section 230 it's only about 25 words long in some but it holds profound power this podcast will discuss it and give potential outcomes and what this would mean for our free society, an open society that allows opinion and free speech. You need to pay attention to this as the concept of biased news and free speech and free expression online, it literally might be at stake here when we look at this debate over Section 230. So let me read to you the language inside of Section 230. Quote, Protection for Good Samaritan Blocking and Screening of Offensive Material. 1. Treatment of publisher or speaker. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Part 2. Civil Liability. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. It's part two of the Good Samaritan rule that you need to have your antenna up really strong for because the key words on there, which I'm going to discuss further, shall not be held liable. So, And then it continues on, any action taken to enable or make available to information content providers or others the technical means to restrict access to material described in paragraph one. So at its core, 
230C1 provides immunity from liability for providers and users of interactive computer service who publish information provided by third-party users. That's Twitter, that's Facebook, that's Instagram, that's all your social media providers. They cannot be sued. They cannot be held liable for content. The key part here is no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker, meaning they're not liable. They just cannot be sued. It's as if they were a utility. You can't sue Facebook any more than you could sue your internet service provider that runs the cable into your home for providing internet. So you can't go to Verizon or or T-Mobile or whoever your your cable company is and sue them because you happen to see questionable content online. The social media giants have that same immunity. So this statute further provides Good Samaritan protection from civil liability for operators um, for moderating in the removal or moderation of third-party material. They deem obscene or offensive. Notice here what they put in here, that they are given the right by Congress, by the federal law, to moderate third-party content. The problem in that is, can we trust these companies to moderate in good faith? Most people would say no, and it's not just the conservatives. Liberals just don't trust them either. But this is a this is important. As the law didn't say, let it all ride and don't moderate content. Just make it the wild, wild west where anything goes all the time. They actually, the government wanted them to make their quote unquote best effort as a good Samaritan law. It's kind of similar if you're, if you see someone choking in a restaurant and you help them do the, and and you need to perform mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but you, you're unable to revive the person and they die, a good Samaritan law says that you can't be held liable for trying to save somebody's life. And they so they put this good Samaritan clause in place for these tech companies. Hey, do the very, very best you can to make sure you moderate this content. So to really understand Section 230, we have to actually go back to the 1950s and there was it happened in Los Angeles and there was this ordinance in the city of of LA that if you have obscene material in your bookstore you can literally be held criminally liable that was in in place in the 1950s so what happens is a vice officer sees an erotic book that he believes is obscene on the shelves of this bookstore and Elizar Smith, he owned this store. He's prosecuted and they actually throw him in jail for 30 days. This case ultimately gets appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court said kind of lays the groundwork as to what's going to come later on in this and Basically, they say there's absolutely no way that a distributor like this bookstore owner can literally read every single page of every book inside of his store. It's just not it's just not viable. And if you're just a distributor, but you're not a publisher and you're not a content creator, you, you can't be held liable for every page inside of every single book. 
So let's move forward then. We get to the the early days of the internet. We're now looking at the 1990s. And there's we see how this fairness doctrine is going to become more and more ingrained. And we look at two providers, CompuServe and Prodigy. Compu- they both took totally different tact as what the internet is and whether they should or should not monitor their internet. So CompuServe basically said, this is the wild, wild west. We're not going to moderate anything. Whatever you put on there and whatever you concern and whatever you, you look at, that's your business, not ours. But then Prodigy takes another tack. They go the exact opposite way and they say, hey, what you put on our, what you put through our platform, we're going to have moderators and we're going to prohibit bad stuff from being online. And of course, they're both, not surprisingly, sued for defamation based on third-party content. And CompuSue's law CompuServe's lawsuit is just dismissed outright uh, the judge says well CompuServe is it basically told you they're just a newsstand they're just a, a bookstore they're not a they're not a content producer they're not a they they're not an editor they're they're just a, the vehicle for people to access content the court rules that prodigy on the other hand they don't get the same immunity since they actually stepped in and said they were going to moderate content, Prodigy's liable because they decided to take more like an editor stance or a producer stance. And so that's what really triggered this idea of Section 230. And for Congress, the motivator was that it really didn't want these platforms to be purely neutral conduits. Congress actually wanted monitoring. It wanted the platforms to moderate content. And this even got brought to a head even further after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And there's an individual who is being harassed because he happened to own some a merchandise store that got tied into the Oklahoma City bombing and his information got published online and he was just harassed mercilessly. Harassed so much that the guy ended up on psychiatric medication. The case actually, Zoran versus America Online was the first case ever decided and it set this precedent for 230. So there's always been this problem with online, this balance that we have to strike between the ability to speak freely online and real harms and real danger that people or the society can suffer. Flash forward to 2016 election and people seeing Section 230 as something with a partisan political bent that favored one party over another. You have the Nancy Pelosi's of the world arguing that the platforms are not moderating content enough. Look at all these conservative views of these outrageous things the Russians are getting on there. You need to step up. You need to do a better job of silencing this conservative stuff. It's just outrageous. Which stands to reason that the Nancy Pelosi types of the world in general would want that because in general, social media, let's face it, is much more on the liberal spectrum of things. And definitely if you're a liberal and you want to win elections, if you could convince those powers that be in the tech companies to censor that side more but leave their side alone, 
politically speaking, I mean, it's a win for the liberals for doing such a thing. It's a lose for the country, but for them, it makes sense. A lot was also driven by the propaganda and fake news because we know foreign governments are appearing on social media and the platforms of a country to attempt to influence, to sow discord in countries. And yeah, the Russians and the Chinese do it, but the U.S. does it in other instances as well. It's just kind of a tactic that's been out there. But then if we flip to the other side and the conservative side, there's the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Howley's of the world that are arguing that the that the tech titans they're mo- they're moderating things way too much. They they step up their moderation efforts only when they're going after conservative voices, but they just turn their shoulder the other way on their bias towards any liberal slant that might be wrong. And so, although it's hard to have empathy or sympathy for the tech titans, especially our social media giants, because I think in general, they're probably more destructive than constructive in society, yet they're in a really tough place because they're getting it from both sides constantly. You have the liberals saying, moderate your platforms more and get those, silence those conservative voices. And on the other side, it's don't moderate on the conservative side. They're screaming at the tech titans. You need to stop moderating. You're not allowing free speech to to get through. So right now, these social media companies are stuck in this vice grip in the middle. As usually happens when governments attempt to fix something, it ends up in a worse place. Sorry for the cynicism, but the more government programs and interventions, usually the worse off we all become in the long run. But I digress on that. So Section 230 was intended to protect free expression on the Internet by shielding these Internet companies from liability for much of the content their users post on their platforms and granting companies legal immunity for good faith efforts to remove content. On the surface, 230 seems like a good thing because it is allowing these platforms to continue to provide a service. If you just, if they didn't have that liability protection, they would be sued out of business. There's probably, they they would face so many lawsuits instantaneously, you know, they, they wouldn't even know how to even come close to defending them all. But the problem on the other side of the coin is this good faith efforts. What a wonderfully vague and obscure term to give the tech titans to moderate content unbiased, good faith efforts. Something you you just can't even sink your teeth into this very easily. And it gives the tech companies such incredible latitude in how they operate that they can pretty much end up becoming this biased platform whereby The Atlantic article is just, it is allowed to flow through because it's just scathing to Trump. But the other article is is just shot dead on arrival and doesn't even barely move. And so it is a problem when the government tells a private entity good faith efforts. You know, that happened with the Fairness Doctrine and the cable companies when they, when they lobbied like heck and, and all the, uh, all the, politicians just bent over there and just took their cash and let them let them moderate themselves how well has that worked out for us how unbiased in their good faith efforts 
uh, is CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. In the end, it's actually kind of funny to even dream that we can have these tech companies go ahead and moderate themselves. To expect better from the social media giants was, well, pretty naive at best. And utter incompetence or ignorance at its worst by the politicians. Or maybe, like when the Fairness Doctrine was established, the tech giants have just been paying off so well the politicians crafting the laws. It's more just simply more the prostitution of the political class than anything else. Who knows exactly what caused it, but let's face it, Section 230, it's not working. So what are we to do? Should we keep it as it is? You know, the First Amendment protects every private enterprise's ability to set and enforce rules for acceptable content on their services. Or should we change it? Should we get rid of it? Section 230 is just too broad. It's giving these internet companies way too many protections. It allows them to get way too powerful. And that's not what the intent of the statute was. It's an incredibly important question for all of us in this country. If Section 230 stays as is, we remain on the path we're on right now. Internet companies keeping their immunity and kind of sort of play the monitoring game and they pretend to hold the face that they're not biased uh, to the best of their ability. Uh, They're doing what they can, which means they're going to keep on saying they're impartial while their actions actually say the opposite. If this happens, I can foreshadow eventually a conservative Facebook and the regular Facebook or a conservative Twitter versus regular Twitter. Just as the right now we have conservative cable news and liberal cable news, this would do nothing positive but breed more tribalism less meaningful discussion, and it would drive this wedge deeper and deeper between the two sides. Or, as I podcasted earlier, if Section 230 stays as is, I can foresee where free speech literally goes underground in America. That would be so sad. And we begin to see utilization of the dark web as the only bastion where people could go and and express their feelings openly and honestly and share things and ideas. But on the other hand, if Section 230 goes away and social media truly becomes just a neutral platform, on the positive side, you wouldn't have any more shadow batting. You wouldn't have any more censoring. You wouldn't have any more deplatforming. The gatekeeping role would be completely chopped out of the equation by the social media giants. These are all theoretically positive and wonderful solutions, but also there'd be some negative sides here because if nobody's monitoring the content, people could be doxxed, harassed. I can imagine the language and the hatred and the nastiness would reach all new levels. Fake news, false news narratives, and foreign government disinformation, it would grow even more prominent in sowing discord as this becomes the wild, wild west. So which is better? I suppose if I had to choose personally, I would say make the social media a platform and take away Section 230 protections. They actually claim to be platforms in their marketing material, that they are a fair and honest broker of information, and they are just there to provide the ability to share things. This is what they say, not what they always do. 
Freedom of speech must be protected at all costs, and without it, we are not a democracy. We're on the verge of a dictatorship. Yet, I don't think the black and white approach is necessarily right. I believe the fairness doctrine or a new version of it would be the best, whereby all sides are required to be equally allowed and big tech CEOs are not allowed to be mini dictators, making sure their views are piped through to the masses and others are muffled. I think there must be a way to say we're going to monitor any type of hate, any type of you know threats, physical threats, physical violence, making sure child pornography or selling illicit drugs or those type of thing. There has to be some type of a common ground that can be reached where the moderation doesn't stretch into political opinions, but rather focuses on safety of society type things. This should not even be a liberal or a conservative issue. One cannot honestly call themselves a liberal if they believe in shutting down free speech. Conservatives, likewise, need to be able to listen to the other side. It is an American thing, not a liberal or conservative thing. One fact is certain. If the country can't get its arms around freedom of speech online, which is the way most communicate now, the very First Amendment of our Constitution will erode to nothingness. Censorship and gatekeeping have done nothing more than shift from mainstream media to the tech titans, and eventually freedom of thought is lost. And without freedom of thought, democracy dies. Let's just be honest. One of the chief content evaluators, or whatever the title is, at Facebook is a former Hillary Clinton campaign surrogate. So come on. Do we really think decisions made at Facebook right now are unbiased? Maybe it will be a slow and painful decline to a socialist, fascist, or communist dictatorship if we do not, if we lose the thought that freedom of speech and freedom of expression is absolutely vital. Or maybe it could be a very rapid change, as change today seems to occur incredibly quicker than in prior generations, but you can be guaranteed if only one perspective is allowed and differing opinions are squashed and left unheard, then one opinion is allowed to dominate as chosen by the tech titans. This is a sick type of communism if this happens. And if this does happen, over whatever period of time, democracy will die. It won't die from a shotgun or a gunshot, but from a 25-word statement in an FCC document. Freedom of speech is critical to our democracy, and we either need to change this Section 230 or flat out get rid of it. There is no perfect solution to this answer, but something has to be done because what we're doing right now is just simply not working. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I hope you found value in this topic. Section 230, a seemingly boring topic, has profound implications for the entire nation. In this world that is just dominated by social media, democracy only works and exists when different opinions are allowed to flourish. We can never forget this, regardless of our political leanings. 
Remember, I generally publish new episodes every Monday and Wednesday. So if you click like or follow, you'll be alerted when new episodes come available. Until the next episode, I hope you have a wonderful week.